Welcome, and thank you for joining us at Gallery Church Downtown. Our gathering is about to begin. Please say hello in the comments or connect with us through email at connect at gcbdowntown.com. Take a minute to grab your Bible and open the notes section in our church app to follow along during the teaching. You will also need to have your communion supplies ready for the end of the gathering. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I am not going to be leading worship with Andrew. If that's what you were thinking, not happening. <laughs> um, so we are so glad that we can meet inside and just have so many, so many people safely come. Um, but there are a lot of things that are happening in preparation of the service, like decisions, whether we meet outside, inside, setting things up and sound and testing all the technologies that we are trying out. So um, I'm just going to lead us in prayer to refocus and actively ask God to just be the center of the service, because it is not really about the space. It is not really about what exactly we are doing here. It's not about the order of the service. It's just about our hearts and us centering ourselves on him. And um, I feel like we need a pause after everything, all the preparations. So join me if you will. Dear Lord, we thank you, God, for this space, Lord God. Thank you that we can safely meet here, God. We are so grateful, Lord God, for everyone, Lord God, that has come here today. Anyone on the way here, I pray that you will bring them here safely, Lord. And um, I ask, Lord God, that you will just center our hearts on you today. We've done everything we can in preparation for the service. We've tuned our instruments, God, and we've set up chairs and we've awaited for people to come. But now I pray that you will take over and I pray that your Holy Spirit will flow in this room, Lord God, and our lives will be changed, Lord God, and our hearts will be transformed by everything we do here and the fact that we are doing it together as one community. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before we continue into worship, into the time of worship, I just want to um, read this scripture. Um, it's about rejoicing and reflecting on the goodness of God and his strength. It's from Psalm 8, verses 1 to 2. It says, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. So with that, just let's worship God. And um, if you remember, you can stand up if you feel comfortable doing that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew, for leading us through that. Can you guys hear me well? Okay, great. Um, okay, there we go. So with that, um, let's move into the time of just reflecting on the worship, and um, you can take a seat. Um, I would like to lead us through the generosity prayer that usually we focus on all together um, every Sunday, um, and it's in the app um, if you want to read it aloud um, with me. I believe it also will be on the screen. Father in heaven... There is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstanding the delusions of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. 
Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. We'd like to encourage you to take a moment now to give if you're prepared. You can do this online at our website or through the app, or we have the boxes on each of the exits here. And before I invite Ellis to proceed with the teaching, just want to pray for him and um, for us to receive it on good ears. Dear Lord, I ask, Lord God, that as Ellis is going to um, just pour his heart out here, Lord God, with everything that he feels like you asked him to say and to deliver today, I ask that you open up our hearts to receive the word of God and the message that we are um, to take on um, and implement, Lord God, with the best of our ability. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lana. Well, it's, it's good to be here with you guys this morning. Um, let me just kind of bring you guys all up to speed on a few things. Uh, one, we're trying to bring the church out of the pandemic. So we are moving towards having a covenant family meeting with all of our brothers and sisters at Patterson and all of our downtown family together on June 27th at 5 p.m. As that is the last Sunday of our fiscal year. So we usually close the books in June and open new books in July. And we're hoping that we can start to close some books on the painful last 18 months or so that we've had and begin to start moving towards some things together um, in July, in August. But the primary goal is that our church is being replanted and, and brought back to new life in September. Um, so that there's a lot of things that we need to talk about in order for those things to happen. So we're going to be creating space for leaders as well as for the Covenant family on the 27th to re- visit like who we are, like what our vision and values are, who are the leaders, who helps make decisions, what are we doing? We, Some of you know that our church was given three church buildings across the, the, south, the southern and eastern side of our city. We've sold one of those. We're selling another one. We're utilizing resources um, through the guidance of our trustees and other leaders to figure out ways of keeping our church sustainable through pandemics and epidemics and and the and as you can see around the room, the, the, the movement of the body of Christ here in Baltimore. Um, and so at the Covenant family, we're going to be talking about some of the things we're doing um, to keep sustainment and strengthen us so that we can push through some really hard years. But I do not want another 2020 for a long time. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. But if that's what the Lord wants for us to go through again very soon, then I want us as a church to be ready to endure, right? We need to be able to face whatever comes our way. And so the series that we're doing this summer, Habitus, is about us making sure we're ready to endure. All right? I want, I want, I want us to hear this. We need to be doing something with the Holy Spirit so that you and I can keep the image of Jesus alive in us. And so... The meeting on the 27th, meeting with leaders, the things we're going to be doing in July and August, my desire for us is that as many of you will rise to the challenge as possible because life is going to shake us and what fruit falls off of our tree is very important because that fruit that falls is what the church has as its evangelism. People will taste the fruit of our lives when we're shook. And if it's sweet, I think they're going to be attracted to it. If it's bitter and unpleasant, they'll probably be repulsed by it. And so we just need to make sure that we continue to shake off. And whether you feel comfortable, I don't know which camera I'm looking at, but whether you're online and you're with us this morning or you're going to be on a future recording or whatever is over here, there's nothing going on over here. Uh, these are all the people that left during the pandemic. So, it's, so there's, there's a lot of things that we're going to be trying and experimenting with. Because people are going to come out of the pandemic with different levels of trust in, in what it means to be together with people. Um, some of you are still frustrated we're having masks on indoors. Others of you are like, we're going to be wearing masks for the rest of our lives. And so there's a balance between all of that, but yet the church. And so I want to read a passage for us today because this Sunday and next Sunday is a two-part teaching series. 
This Sunday, I'm answering the question, why, in two parts. Why habitus? Why is this important? Why even talk about it? Um, And the first week is heart. The second week is groaning from the heart. And so that's, that's where we're going the next two Sundays. But the passage for today is Matthew 23. So I have a feeling that if it's on the screen, you'll divert to that. But if you have your Bible or your phone and you want to open it up, it's in the notes in the app as well. I want to encourage you to follow along and even take notes. But in Matthew 23, listen to this in verse 25. Right, so they're, they're doing the best they can, Bob. Um, what sorrows awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but not inside, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. The blind Pharisee, excuse me, you blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Last week, if you were here or if you had a chance to catch up with us online, Aida, who uh, is one of our pastors with her husband over at our Patterson Church family, helping provide care there, she gave a very powerful and encouraging word last Sunday. So if you have not listened to it, you need to go listen to it so that you can get the full weight of everything we're talking about in the month of June. It is online for you to go back and listen. But she talked to us about conviction. And in conviction, she used this definition, a firmly held belief. Now, like I said a minute ago, some of us have a really firm belief that everybody should still be wearing a mask. And others of you have a really firm belief that we should be past masks. And that has caused division in the church. Not necessarily this church, although it is a tension point. But there are, there are believers right now that are having a really hard time with each other over just the issue of a mask, another form of a cup. And so we're trying to say, well, what is our conviction in? And so last week she said, our conviction should be in the fact that Jesus is king and that Jesus is Lord. And there is the root of all of our conviction. Everything about our life should be based in the fact that Jesus is our true king and he is our true Lord. And therefore, he has the rights of our entire life. This series is coming out of several discussions we've had with leaders and our our joint staff across our churches. Because when we were going through the replant series, we were looking at the early church and we hit a few topics very quickly to make a point But it was not enough time for us to actually dwell in it and actually let it be impactful to us. So we've decided to slow the whole replant series down and reprise it over the summer, giving a lot of intentionality to the type of follower of Jesus that we're supposed to be. And so today, I am going to be hopefully helping us begin to slow down and start to consider some very important points. So let me start with some research that I've done on the first 300 years of church history. And I want you to hear this. The first part of that first century were people that actually heard Jesus say the things that we are talking about today. Does that resonate with you? Do you understand what I'm saying? So that first wave of followers were actually present, some of them, when Jesus hung out for 40 days after the resurrection, there's Luke actually attests to the fact there could have been as many as 500 people that had a chance to hang out with Jesus after the resurrection. And they had a part on the first century church. They heard it and went and put into practice what Jesus said to them. We know for sure that there were over 100 people in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 and 2. When the Holy Spirit finally came and 10 days after Jesus ascended, they finally walked out the door and the Holy Spirit did powerful things. So there are people that we're going to be looking at over the course of the summer that weren't second hand or third hand or fourth hand or fifth hand or how many hands it goes before the illustration is way too redundant that actually heard Jesus say it. And then we look at believers that didn't have a Bible. Believers that didn't have all that we have in regards to internet connectivity and conferences and books. They did have a lot of writings. Actually, many secular historians 
say that the Christians were the best writers in the year 200 and 300. They documented things and had some of the most powerful poetic writings that were circulating the known world at that time because it was vitally important to them. What Aida shared with us last week, that Jesus was king and not Caesar. And so let me just give you one example today. Um, but let me share this with you. Um, Alan Creeder is a basically an expert historian. So um, let me just say I'm the curator to his artwork today. Do you guys understand what I mean by that? Like this dude is the master painter. I could never paint it, but I could talk about it, right? I can be trained to talk about it. So he is a master artist in regards to first century, second century, and third century Christianity. This is what he shares. And I don't know, Albert, is it on the screen for us? No. Okay, never mind. It's in your notes, though. Um, The expansion of the churches was not organized. The product of mission programs. It simply happened. Further, the growth was not carefully thought through. Hold on. Did you catch that? His his testimony of reading thousands of documents and letters about the first, second, and third century church was to say that it wasn't carefully thought through. Early Christian leaders did not engage in debates between rival mission strategies. The Christians wrote a lot, and what they wrote was surprising. And listen to this. The Christians wrote three treaties on patience but not one single treaty on evangelism. Further, to assist their growing congregations with the practical concerns, the Christians wrote, and I quote, church orders. They were manuals that provided guidance for life and worship of the congregation. So what what Alan is saying is that all the research he did over the first three centuries of the church The writings of the church leaders was about the way in which the church understood what Jesus taught and then how they worshiped him. And that's where they put all of their time and attention. And they began to focus on the the, the, the heart of the believer. So let me give you an example from that, that period of time. In the decade of the 250s, does that make sense? So the year 250 through the year 260. There was a leader in North Africa called Cyprian. Have any of you ever heard of Cyprian before? Am I talking to, uh, there's maybe a few of you, all right? Um, But Cyprian was the bishop in Carthage in North Africa. And let me just share with you the problems that he wrote about. So I want you to understand, they didn't have an easy life. It wasn't a perfect church because many of them were descendants of the first disciples, let me share with you what he says. So he, he broke it down into three categories, Cyprian did. The first was within the church. He was involved in the following conflicts. Listen to this. Confessors, people that were confessing Jesus, there was conflicts over that. Lapse in rich people attending the church. I don't know why I'm pausing. And even with a conflict with the Bishop of Rome. There's several of his writings where he was in a direct conflict with another church leader. So he wrote about problems within. Then he wrote about problems without, outside the church. He and other Christians were facing increased waves of hostility from the government of the, the imperial authorities of Rome. So there was increased pressure from the outside of the church. They were dealing with conflicts inside the church. And can I tell you what was the icing on the cake? They also were facing a North African epidemic that church history writes or that world history writes about that claims so many lives they can't even add a number to it. Like at least Hopkins right now, you can go and look at a ticker and tell you how many people they believe have died during this pandemic but they had no way of documenting the millions and millions of lives that were dying to some invisible disease that was taking over North Africa in that year 250. And so they knew inside conflict, they knew outside pressure, and they knew global epidemic. So I just want to say to us as a church, if we pause and go through this summer, I promise you we will find people that can relate to our pain. We can find people that wrestled through our same struggles. History books and some of the writings shared by Christians 
talked about how the church in that decade of the 250s had become so disheartened they were losing hope. I would, I would ask for a show of hands, but I don't want to put that on you. But I would just ask some of you in this room right now, in the last 10 years, like let's just say this decade, how many of you have gotten so disheartened inside the church and so disheartened outside the church and so disheartened during a pandemic that you were just ready to quit? Think about the last 10 years of your life. I'm saying to us as a church, we can identify with people that know what you and I are personally feeling and how painful it is to stay after it. Some of the people inside of the church that Cyprian was dealing with were so fed up with the authorities oppressing them that he had to write numerous things to them and speak to them about acting out violently against their current authorities. How many pastors since January the 6th have had to deal with this very same issue? How many pastors should have been dealing with it all of last year? The world around Cyprian seemed out of control. So amid all that Cyprian, as the bishop was facing, he wanted to make sure that the people under his care held to their tradition. Now, two years ago, we were ministering to well over 200 people a a, a month in this space, 200 different faces. Uh, The last 30 days, we probably ministered to 50 different faces. This church has gone through a massive loss. I don't want you to get disheartened, just like I don't want to get disheartened. So what I'm saying to you, I need you to remind me of, and I want to remind you and you remind me, and did you guys get that? Like, this isn't just for you. I need this. Being honest with you, about 30, 45 days ago, I was sitting down with a group of pastors on my roof deck telling them that I wanted to quit. All right, so this, this is real pain. This is real issues that we're dealing with because the labor of looking like Jesus in our generation is costly. And if you were here on Pentecost Sunday, I asked at the very end of the service for people that don't yet believe in Jesus to read what Jesus taught. But do you guys know what I asked the second response was to reading what Jesus taught? Any of you remember what my second request was of the people that yet believed in Jesus? The second thing I asked of them, and some of you haven't learned yet that you can cheat by going back in your notes in your app, but that's okay. You'll learn. Um, Is that, could you count the cost of what it means to follow what Jesus taught? So before you even say, I'm going to believe in Jesus, would you listen to his teachings? And then would you measure the cost? Because our faith in Jesus living in this world today will cost you. If we follow Jesus, the red letters, as Aida talked about last week, it will cost us. It's not easy living the way Jesus wants us to live. And so Cyprian was feeling the very same way, and he didn't want the people in his tradition to lose heart. And this is what he goes on to write to them in the year 256. He says this, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Did you catch that? Let me say that one last time. We do not speak great things, but we live them. What a striking phrase. He goes on to to end that treaty with this. Therefore, as servants and worshipers of God, let us show by spiritual homage the patience. Interesting word. That we learn from the heavenly teachings for that virtue, patience, we all have in common with God. So when Cyprian was reflecting on what God did in the Old Testament and what God was doing in his time, his observation was God is patient. And his observation to the church as a way of practical teaching was to say, if we're going to endure, we need to follow the patience of our God. We can't demand a daily wow We have to learn what it is like to patiently live with people as God had set as an example. 
I could share so much more with you. That's why we're doing it over the whole summer, because there's so many things that are similar that Tertullian wrote about who was serving 50 years prior to Cyprian. And then we could look at a closer look at some of another more popular character that some of you might be aware of called Justin the Martyr, who was living around the year 165, or other writings from Clement of Alexandria, who was living around 160 to 215. But that would make today's teaching too long, and it already feels too long. So let me keep moving on. They all held a comment. All of those writings of the people I just mentioned to you, they had the similar heart in regards to the fact that they believed patience was needed if we were going to not just understand the teachings of Jesus, but make them how we lived intentionally. Some of us have an unhealthy expectation of how quickly the rest of us are developing. We must grow in patience. I would say that we all agree that it is everyone's desire in this room, maybe even some of our younger ones, that Jesus is who we want to ultimately look like. I would say that's probably the desire of many of us. Some of us just want salvation. Others of us want a total transformation of who we are. Some of us have increased our activity at church or in the past. I'm hoping we come out of the pandemic our volunteer, our, our servants, our ones that are laboring with us, that we can continue to do that more effectively and powerfully. But many of us have increased activity around church, but our heart hasn't changed. When life strikes us or shakes us, like the picture on the Habitus slide, you, the fruit that falls off of you is anger, rage, jealousy, slander, not gentleness, kindness, humility, and self-control. But yet you've been going to church for decades. Why is it that the things that are coming out of us haven't changed yet? Some of us, because of this last year, have allowed the culture of our day to be the bigger influence us than our Holy Spirit that has come to help us. So over the last year, let me just ask a couple of things. What have you been putting more of your time into? Some of you have now gotten caught up on every movie you've ever wanted to watch. And now you go to Netflix or other forms of entertainment and you scroll and scroll and scroll and you're bored because you can't pick a movie that you haven't seen or that you're not, you're interested in. Do you know how I know that? I'm, I'm a living example of it, right? That's how I know that that's a struggle for us. Some of you have dove into music and your musical choice has now become the loudest voice in your life. And what the artist is saying in the music is now determining how you process the politics of our day, the cultural challenges of our city and the things that are impacting us as a church. Some of you have turned to the gym. Some of you have done that at home by buying equipment. Others of you have gone out and you have put your life into those things and, and you're not necessarily thinking about what is coming into me. You're just thinking about what do I need to do with my physical appearance? Others of us, we've turned to our news networks. Your news network is now the loudest voice in your life. Some of you have turned to books and you don't care what it is, you just are reading. Others of you have invested in friends that aren't following Jesus because they were easier for you to be with, and you're now allowing those friends to tell you what life should look like. I think it's time for us as a church to do a time audit. If we were honest and we were able to block a morning or an afternoon and an evening, and we looked back over the last year of our life and we audited our time, what amount of our time has been built around the Holy Spirit shaping the image of Jesus in us? In Jesus's day, there were leaders like myself and other people that thought they understood the way that God should be honored with their lives. Can I tell you this? There were denominations, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and there were multiple divisions of them and different people. I don't have time to talk to you about all of them today. I just want to focus on the Pharisees that invited Jesus to a dinner in our Matthew 23 passage. But can I share this with you? Their intent was to honor God. Their intent was to say, what practices can we have that allow us to show people who God is? So the people that had invited Jesus to a, the table thought they were honoring God. And therefore, because it was honoring of God, they thought they could demand that same activity of other people. In Matthew 23, we get a glimpse of those practices and how they used their time. 
want you to hear this. This is a glimpse into their time audit. They believed that the table, when you sit down to eat, was an altar. Is that a bad thing? When you sit down at a meal, is it wrong to think that this could be a sacred space, especially in light of our faith where Jesus says you should come to the table often and every time you do, you should remember what I did for you. So is it not a good thing for the Pharisees to want the table to be sacred? They also believed that food was a blessing because it was God's way of keeping the body alive to be good worshipers of him. Is that a bad belief? All right, some of you are a little stiff. This is, we're getting back to the practice of being together. Don't be so stiff. At least blink with your eyes or something. Right? Like show me that you're in agreement because when you sit down at food and you eat it and you realize that it is the way that God has sustained us and blessed us, especially for those of us that have never lacked for food and we know hunger, but we don't know starvation. There should be a holiness to just coming to food, right? The table, the food, holy, this is what the Pharisees, the posture they had when Jesus was sitting down with them. They didn't like the way that Jesus skipped some steps. But here, listen to this. Jesus doesn't thank them for their practices and their disciplines. He doesn't insult. He does, in fact, in my opinion, insult them. And he tells them that their practices of their faith are moving them towards idolatry and not towards the one true God. So wait a minute. They had a belief that their table was holy and that the food on the table was holy. And Jesus sits down and insults them and says, everything you're just doing and talking to me about is, is moving you away from God and is not moving you towards God. They had a practice and a way that they were producing surface change, but they had no deep change. So when they were still struck, they were still stealing. When they were still struck, they abused their authority. When they were still struck, they had pride. They were self-indulgent. They made sure they were first at the table and that the poor were last. So Jesus was calling them out for all of their practices were great, but yet they had lost the heart. And so let me give you two examples of how I've seen this. One from my early years and now a second from recent days. The first, when I grew up, do any of you know the term legalism? All right, yes. I grew up in a church that was very legalistic. They had one translation of the Bible that they said was the only version of the Bible. And they demanded, and this is what they demanded of men. Do you guys know what they demanded of men? Short hair. The length of your hair in a legalistic church showed how much of the evil world was in your life. And so men had to cut their hair. Ladies, do you remember what the big thing was in legalism for women for a public example of their faith? Some was head coverings. No. Tiana, man, you and my mom just would have just said amen. Mama, I think my mom might be on it. They demanded that women not wear pants. That women couldn't wear pants. It was a sign of how much of the evil world had gotten into them. Or the length of their dress also was a sign of how much. And there are even churches still in Baltimore that keep blankets up by the front of the church. And there are assigned Servants, I'll call them, that will take a blanket and cover a woman's legs in church for them if they, de- they determine that her skirt is now showing how much evil she's bringing in to the church, right? So that's legalism. And so let me say this. They were talking about length of hair, the types of clothes, but it was more important than what came out of your heart when life strikes you. The second example, if I say the word CrossFit, Do you guys know what that is? All right. Let me just give you an example. Do any of you have anybody that goes to CrossFit in your life? All right. Don't they tell you about it? When you bump into somebody that does CrossFit, they love to talk about CrossFit. They are all in. They have at their CrossFit box, which, do you know what a CrossFit box is? What is it? 
It's their gym. So they don't, they don't go to the gym. They go to their CrossFit box. That's better. So I'm not insulting them because some of you, CrossFit can be fantastic, all right? They have, as a part of CrossFit, shared lifestyle. They have shared practices. They have a rigidly shared schedule. They have a shared thinking. And if you are all into CrossFit, can I tell you one thing that is for sure going to happen in your life? You are going to have a beautiful cup. There's no way you can't dive in, all in, to CrossFit and not end up having a beautiful cup. There are a lot of men my age that are wanting to ditch the, man, the, the dad, dad bod. And so they're switching to CrossFit so that they can look more like a 50-year-old movie star that's getting paid millions to look that way. Like, I'm not going to mention any names. I don't want any of you to lust. All right. But here's the thing. Producing a good body isn't bad. Being healthy isn't bad. I exercise because when I am asked by God to serve people, I want to be able to do it. There are too many pastors that when they're asked to serve, they can't do it for more than 10 minutes without having to have them sit down. So I want to be able to work arm in arm with the men and women of our church as long as we have to serve. So I discipline myself to walk three to six miles a day. I discipline myself to do push-ups. Those are things that I would do so that if I'm called upon to love somebody through physical activity, I don't have to embarrass myself, even though I still do. But does the disciplines of CrossFit change the heart? Does it change what comes out of you when you're angry or when you lose your job or your relationships fall apart or a pandemic strikes you and you lose a parent? This is, an art, this is a quote from a lady named Allie who was quoted in an article on how CrossFit has become the new church. This is what she says. My CrossFit box is everything to me. I've met my boyfriend, some of my very best friends through CrossFit. At our box, we have babies and little kids crawling around everywhere. And it has been an amazing experience to watch these little ones grow up. CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community. I can't imagine my life without the people I've met through it. This lady's testimony of a gym should be the testimony of a church. The practices that produce a strong and lean body with friendship and love and community need to be mixed with practices that produce a good heart. Surface change, but does it change the heart? So the verses that we read earlier out of Matthew 23 were to the Pharisees about, you got great practices, but you're missing out on the heart. Let me read another passage to us, Matthew 15. 16 through 20. Do you understand yet, says Jesus, anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes to the sewer, is what he says to them. Very interesting concept, right? So the food, whether it's a salad or a hamburger, sorry, not to be insulting, goes through the mouth and out into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart, and that's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating and, un- and using unwashed hands will never defile you. And in Luke 18, he said, there's a, a contrast between a religious leader and a tax collector. Let me tell you what the tax collector says. But the tax collector Jesus is talking about stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what's the key to the transplanted heart in our life taking root? I think there's two things for this Sunday, brokenness and humility. We can have good practices, but if we're not broken and we're not humble, we will not have a healthy heart. 
Ezekiel 36, the prophet Ezekiel, when he was talking to Israel, which is a foreshadowing of this heart transplant. And here, let me just say this. I know a lot of you in here are in the medical field. Am I incorrect in saying this? If you're getting a human heart transplant, it is not as simple as them cracking you open, taking out your old heart, putting a new heart in, and then closing you up, and then you just live well, right? In order for that heart to stay with you, are there not things that doctors and you have to do together so that that heart takes and you have long life? It's not as simple as just putting a new one in. Can I just tell you guys this? When you believe in Jesus, it's not just as simple as him giving you a new heart. You have to maintain it. You have to maintain it or else it will go right back to the heart that it once was. And Ezekiel knew this, and he's foreshadowing to these Israelites the blessing that you and I have today. He says, then I will sprinkle you clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And you will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. And here's the promise. You will be my people and I will be your God. So over this summer, we are going to take time to look at what the early believers did to maintain their transplanted heart underneath awful interior conflicts, outside problems, and a global epidemic. They had practices that helped them be attractive to other people so that other people wanted to believe in Jesus Christ. But we will be looking at practices that the Pharisees abused. And there's three of them in the verses I used today. I don't know if you picked up on it. There was things around prayer and fasting and tithing that the Pharisees were doing inappropriately and it was condemning their heart or, or, or souring their heart. But yet the early church prayed in ways, fasted in ways, and tithed in ways that actually brought life to the heart. So what's the difference? So we're going to be looking at that over the summer plus several other things. The early church knew, and I'm not just talking about the, the church that Paul wrote to and Peter wrote to and James wrote to. I'm talking about the early writers, Cyprian, Tertullian, um, Justin the Martyr, all these writers, they were adamant to the early church that they had to put certain things into practice so that their heart would not stop beating for Jesus. Paul used three analogies. He says, you have to learn to care for your new heart like a farmer cares for a field. Then he goes on to say, you also have to care for your heart like a soldier that trains for a battle. And then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, you have to condition your body like a CrossFit athlete or, as we will soon be celebrating very shortly, Olympic athletes. He says you must condition yourself or else the new heart will not survive under the pressure. So there's so much that we're going to be looking at this summer. And I want us to be a church that comes out of this pandemic, that regrows in our love for one another, and that allows our love for God to grow uninhibited. And when you and I are shook by life, the good fruits of Jesus come out of us. So this week, I've been talking to you about a new heart. Next week, I'm going to be talking to you about the groaning of the heart. Paul actually goes on to tell the early church in Romans 8, not only is your heart groaning, the earth groans. So what does the groaning of our heart and the groaning of the earth have anything to do with our habitus? I'm going to talk to us about that next week. So how should you and I use our life, measure our time, look at where we're allowing influences to come in, and how are those things impacting our faith, hope, and love. So our whole summer is going to be about us. We're going to be talking about scripture reading, scripture memory, prayer, fasting, tithing, giving, and one of my favorites, because I'm married to one of the best, hospitality. Can I just say this? I was reading an article by Cyprian. He actually had a writing where they, in their worship service, practiced hospitality. I have an idea. Oh, I cannot wait for the Sunday that we're on hospitality. You guys are going to be like, oh, do I go or do I not go? Maybe I'll just watch online. But whether you're online or not, I'm going to get you. This is going to be good. All right. And because we can't just say I need to be ready to have people over. 
we need to practice so that when we do be, we are placed in those moments, people feel like they sat with Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity for us to share in this time together. And so Lord, right now, I just ask that your spirit would keep working on us and that we would keep working with your spirit so that the the new heart that we've been offered would stick. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Andrew, if I'm not mistaken, you did all three songs, correct? All right. Um, and did everyone get a Lord's Table cup besides me um, on the way in? But I want you to go ahead and thank you, Andre. Um, I want you to go and get your hands on this, but I just want to take a minute for us to have a moment to pray and let the Holy Spirit work on us. None of us want to be called a Pharisee. I that's not on the top of my list, right? I don't want to walk into a church meeting and somebody like, ah, here comes the Pharisee. That's insulting, right? But can we just take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to talk to us about the word Pharisee in our life? Let's just pause just for a moment and just say, Father, Spirit, Son, where do I look like a Pharisee? Let's just take a minute. And just see if the Holy Spirit says anything to you. It's very likely he might not, but he also might. Where where are we more worried about the outside of the cup than inside the cup? Obviously, we talked about the way people discipline themselves physically and for education. Um And churches have many times abused putting practices on people. But let's just take a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to talk about our effort in our faith. What is our effort in our faith like? Ask the Holy Spirit to talk to you about that just for a moment. And then just keep your hands open before the Lord and just ask the Holy Spirit, just reveal anything to me right now that is an idol in front of you. Father, forgive us for the things that we've done knowingly and the things that we've done out of total naivety. We weren't even aware that we were doing wrong. So, Father, would you help us to make those things right? We thank you for your body broken for us. We thank you for your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And, Father, right now as a church, we're going to do this in remembrance of you but we're also wanting to look like Jesus with our lives. So we know that we need to be practicing things so that we can be like Christ when the authorities are on us, when insults are on us, when food is not plentiful, when pandemics and epidemics are on us. We want to look like Jesus. And we know that's going to mean our body broken and our lives poured out for others. Lord, we want your spirit to help us get there. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. And so whether you're watching online or you're in the room right now, I'd love for you to go ahead and remove um, or get your wafer bread cookie. I know that there was one Sunday when we were doing this during the pandemic, I realized that we had no bread and we had no juice. And Ginger and I enjoyed dark chocolate and water. (laughs) Um, And you guys didn't know it, but that's what we had as the Lord's table that morning. And I have to say it was the best tasting Lord's table that we've ever had in church together. But uh, it doesn't matter what you have, because again, the, the, the desire is, is to remember his body broken for us. Would you take time just to say that to somebody? This is his body broken for you. We're broken for you. Now let's take that together. And then carefully, if you can, prepare the cup. And I'd love for you to be able to look at one another and be like, this was his blood shed for you. Let's say that together. This was his blood that was shed for you. Thank you. At least now we're all 
having small portions of bread so it doesn't take us as long to recover. Um, and because a lot of times I would jump into announcing the mysteries of our faith and some of you were needing the Heimlich because the bread we were chewing was too big. That is definitely not the case now. But let's, let's, let's announce the mystery of our faith together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ has come again. Okay, so here we go. Let me, let me do the benediction then. So I'm just going to extend a hand to you, and if you want to extend a hand towards me, um, I am going to selfishly ask for you to be praying for me. Um, I am dealing with conflicts inside the church. I am dealing with conflicts outside the church. I'm dealing with a pandemic. And my mom found out two weeks ago that she has breast cancer. And so I am dealing with a mom tomorrow with her surgeons and doctors in her health care. And I am overwhelmed. And so please be praying for me. So as we go from here today, may you and I do what we need to do in partnership with the Holy Spirit so that the new heart of Christ will take life in us and will become the dominant heart that is producing the fruits of God's spirit in us. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you guys so much. We love you.